0: Your emergency department can turn away no one, that is the reality of MTALA. but what is being done to soften the economic impact? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MDXM 157. I am your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining us today to discuss the economic impact of delivering ED care is Dr. John McConnell, who has his PhD from Stanford University but he's also an associate professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. He has been working on a committee formed by the Institute of Medicine to solve the on-call crisis in Palm Beach County. His research is focused on emergency and trauma care, behavior and health sciences, and health policy. Dr. McConnell, welcome to ReachMD.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: So first of all, what is your role in the Department of Emergency Medicine and how did you get there? There's not too many people who study economics that work in the ER.
1: Right. I'm sort of an odd bird. So our emergency department at Oregon Health and Science University has a research group and I'm an economist as part of this group. And so I do research and look for grants, do research, and some of my research is on emergency care and that turned out to be a good place to go. Uh, there's a lot of interest in health economics and not many people had focused on emergency care. So it was sort of a nice fit for me after uh, graduate school.
0: And you're very timely doing this right
1: now, right? Yeah, there's a lot of interest in health economics in general, and especially the uninsured and, and how they relate to emergency care.
0: Now, emergency departments in America have had the same economic crisis that Americans face. In fact, they may have been facing it longer with budget cuts. What are some of the strategies that you've explored to solving the problem of subspecialty coverage?
1: You know, there's sort of maybe five ways that hospitals are sort of dealing with this. You know, one is just to go without call, and that unfortunately is happening. So we know that a lot of hospitals are dropping 24-7 coverage for some of their hospitals. And in Oregon, it's been a large number. It's been over a third of hospitals that have done that. The second strategy is to pay stipends. So you pay physicians receive 1000 or $2,000 a night to agree to carry beeper and be on call. A third is to guarantee pay for physicians, say, at a Medicare rate for any patient they see who's uninsured so that the physicians know that they're getting paid. A more sort of recent shift is to employ physicians or specialists, sort of like a hospitalist model, but employing surgeons instead of primary care physicians. And then other things that are being used here and there are some more frequent hiring of locum tendens physicians to come in and cover call gaps. And then, in some cases, interest in regionalization.
0: Now, surgicalists come in, they're paid by the hospital a stipend, correct? And they're there and they're on call? Yes. And then they see patients that need surgeons emergently, correct? Yes. Is it cost-effective to hire surgicalists?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think it depends on the hospital size and how many patients they see and how many surgeons they have to employ. But in some ways, it's becoming more cost-effective because of these other changes. And so you could imagine that, say, three years ago, a hospital might look and they, maybe they'd say, well, I can hire three surgeons for a million dollars, if I hire them, I'm only going to bring in an extra $700,000 in terms of the revenue that I could capture from those physician services. So I'd be losing $300,000, and so I wouldn't do that. But today, you know, the option might be to do that and lose $300,000 or to not do that, but still end up losing $500,000 that you'd be paying in stipends. And so I think what hospitals are seeing is, well, maybe I make money or I break even, but it's better than not having that money and paying out these stipends.
0: Now, you worked on a committee out of Palm Beach County to solve their on-call crisis. Can you tell us something about that project?
1: That was a couple of years ago, and that was sort of one of the early canary in the coal mine places where this was becoming a real issue. In Palm Beach County, I didn't realize this till I went down there, but this is one of the richest counties in the U.S., and perhaps the richest county in the U.S. This is where Donald Trump has one of his famous houses, and it's a nice place. And, you know, there the focus was people were looking for a lot of different solutions, and nobody had really... Sort of proposed this surgicalist model, or at least not widely. The focus then was really to try to see if you could regionalize call. And it seems to make sense. You know, you would think in an urban area, maybe you don't need a hand surgeon to be on call at every single hospital every night of the week. So maybe you can find a way for one hand surgeon group at one hospital to take call for the whole region. And so that was the emphasis that's what we talked about. There was a lot of money put into it. There was sort of you know money used to sort of form committees and by consultants and things like that, but it never really got off the ground. I think that kind of, there's a lot of challenges there, but it sort of speaks to some of the difficulty of regionalization, that if this was an area with a lot of money, a lot of focus, that they still couldn't make it work there.
0: And if you have part-time ED coverage, some nights you have hand surgery or OBGYN, some nights you don't, and you're the guy who's working in the ED, that's when you get stuck because you're night on. They don't have anybody covering that service and you're placed in a position that many of us have been in where you've got to try to transfer that patient who may or may not have funding to another facility who probably doesn't want to accept them. It's not safe for the patient. It's challenging for the doctor and mistakes get made and people get sued.
1: Yes. I'm an economist. so I don't work clinically, but I work with people who do. And it's a real headache. It's been really hard for them. I mean, I, you know, I hear these horror stories of them being on the phone for hours trying to locate a particular specialist to take care of a patient and it can be very difficult.
0: You applied the solution in Oregon and did it work there?
1: I can't take credit for applying any solutions here, but I can tell you what Oregon's done. And what they've done is sort of use a blend of these things. So in some cases, hospitals have gone without coverage. In some cases, they've done stipends. The trend has generally been to move away from stipends toward guaranteed pay, toward employing physicians. And I think it's working, but it's amazing how quickly this is changing. It's a very dynamic situation. And so, you know, it's working. I don't know if it's hit equilibrium yet.
0: So, what are some of the other issues you've worked on with Oregon policymakers where you think maybe your work has made a difference? What could we learn from what you've already? researched and been through.
1: Well, you know, I do some work on emergency department care and then some sort of general policy care. One project that I just worked on uh, was looking at Medicaid clients or beneficiaries. And Oregon was one of the first states to see if they could cut the cost of Medicaid by imposing co-payments on some of their Medicaid enrollees. And so we have good data. Actually, there's some good economic research on how patients with commercial insurance, respond to copayments, and generally they use less services and it reduces the cost of care, but we hadn't really seen much research on what that looks like for very poor or very sick people who might be on Medicaid. And so this is sort of an interesting study because if the copayments work, that's a good way to save money. If they don't, then that's useful. And what we found was that the Medicaid clients who had these copayments put on them, that they pulled back service, they used less services just like commercial patients, but when they went... They were sicker, so they had fewer visits, but when they went, their visits were more expensive. They had more inpatient admissions, and so in the end, the economic gain from fewer visits was offset by more expensive care when they needed it with some sort of disturbing suggestions, so some good evidence that copayments weren't good there.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and joining me to discuss managing the economic impact of ER medicine is Dr. John McConnell. So, with all that's going on today with Wall Street and the economy, how is the current economic crisis going to affect physicians, emergency departments, and healthcare across the board, given the challenges we've already
1: had? In general, it's sort of helpful to sort of think about where we're going in the economy without thinking too much about health care. And I think the best guess – looking at economists who do more of this macroeconomic policy prediction, you know, I think we're looking at pretty severe recession, sort of like something that we had in 1982. And it's been a long time since we've had anything that bad. So I think it's going to be difficult. I think 2009 is not going to be great. 2010 is going to be probably a little bit better, but not great. And I think by 2011, maybe things will come around if our sort of our current policies work.
0: Now, because you're an economist, we're hanging on your every word. So everybody listening to this wants your overall forecast, probably as well as they want your specific. ED forecast. So, well, continue. The, the
1: usual caveats apply to the economists looking into the future there. That seems to me to be kind of a reasonable scenario. So, if people want to use that as a benchmark, I think that's, you know, to me, that seems to be reasonable. So, what does that mean for physicians? Well, you know, I think in the short run, you're not going to see a lot of changes, but maybe over the next year, you can expect that there's going to be more unemployment, which means that people are going to come off of employer covered insurance. There's going to be more uninsured that are seeking care through the hospital. Medicaid rolls will probably go up. You'll probably see more Medicaid patients coming into the hospital or your practice. But, you know, the shift from commercial payment to Medicaid payment, you may see more Medicaid patients, but they're going to be paying less. So I think that's probably what you're going to see. We're already hearing sort of locally that there's some shifts away from elective surgery that people seem to be putting that off. So, you know, I think it is going to affect medical practice. On the other hand, there are other industries that are sort of more susceptible to changes in economic fluctuations. So, you know, medical care is generally pretty steady relative to other industries.
0: So they're putting off elective surgery and we're seeing that already? Yes. Patients are going to be sicker coming into the hospital because they may avoid seeking care if care is going to cost them.
1: You may see some of that as well.
0: And the other interesting thing is with COBRA. We know that employers have to provide COBRA for not sure the days, but certainly a number of months after terminating employment. But COBRA, which isn't often spoke about, is outrageously expensive. And many patients are not able to continue coverage at those rates because you're playing the employer half and the employee half, correct?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And we don't have solutions for those built into our system. And as you said, jobs are being terminated. Right. At our county hospital in Miami, the ED was always a revolving door for the un- and the underinsured Is this an issue that, again, needs to be addressed in a more aggressive manner than we have in the past? Because even when times were good, you still had this problem because the people come here without health care and they're from other countries and they need it urgently.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the system that we have. And, you know, I think that we saw sort of a dramatic version of that here in Oregon when we had a Medicaid contraction in 2003. And this is another project I worked on, but we saw a contraction of the Medicaid program that put about a 100,000 people out of 400,000 in the total Medicaid population took them off and put them into the uninsured ranks. And so we tracked what happened to emergency departments across the state, and what we saw was a average increase in uninsured patients going to the emergency department by over 30% with even higher increases when you broke it down to sort of some specific diagnoses. So a lot more people coming in with mental health issues and substance abuse issues and things like that. So we know from that experience that, you know, as people become more insured that the emergency department is where they go.
0: And I heard that, whereas previously... We know that many mental health benefits and many substance abuse issues are not covered under insurance, even if you have good working insurance, or they're not covered to a great degree. And if you have any more knowledge of this, please correct me, but I believe they said 2010 health care plans are going to be required to cover substance abuse and mental health needs for the patients.
1: Yeah, this is sort of a very strange interesting part of the emergency financial rescue plan that was just passed. So that was a $700 billion plan with a few other weird things in there. And, and one this of was things, tacked on. This was tacked on. So that there was a mental health parity thing that had been always floated around the House and the Senate and sort of you know made it up to certain levels, but never quite passed. And so that passed. A lot of states had sort of parity laws for some of their fully insured groups, but because of the way that Federal laws affect whether or not a plan is self-insured or self-funded. It didn't affect all of the commercial groups. But, yes, starting in 2010, there will be mental health parity for everybody, with some small exceptions according to small group employer plans, but should be pretty widespread.
0: What advice would you give to physicians listening to this show if they want to get more involved in the economics of ED policy issues? It's been there all along. EDs have been struggling. And with the financial crisis, it's really only going to be compounded. How can doctors get more involved?
1: My advice is to sort of approach policy the same way that they approach medicine, which is to be evidence-based. I think sometimes there's a tendency in some physicians that I've worked with to be very thorough in determining, you know, whether or not, for example... Antibiotics are warranted for a patient, but then you know their assessments of policy options are based on intuition or, or faulty assumptions and so you know, I think it 's helpful to sort of review the evidence. Good places to start just sort of generally I think for understanding health policy and sort of people who 've looked at it for a long time kind of what their knowledge is that they can be passed on is you know health affairs is a very good journal that 's sort of written for a lay audience you don 't have to have experience in economics or, or things like that, but there's a lot of good economic articles in there. And then you yeah, I think there's some other books that have come out recently that sort of describe some of the healthcare issues generally that, that would be useful for physicians wanting to have more of a voice in the policy sphere.
0: We're almost out of time, but can you give us a couple of titles or authors?
1: You know, one that I've just uh, read that I think is really great and perhaps may be important in the near future is a book by Ezekiel Emanuel called Healthcare and Guaranteed. And uh, Emanuel not actually an economist, but he's a physician who understands the economics very well and has worked closely with economists. And he sort of describes some of the major issues and lays out a healthcare reform plan that I think is very good, maybe the best one out there. The reason that there may be some traction there is that he's also politically savvy. He's just wrote an article with Ron Wyden, who's the Oregon senator, who has a health care reform plan. Out there, they just wrote an article together in JAMA, so he's partnering with Ron Wyden. He's also the brother of Rahm Emanuel, who's, I think, the chair of the Democratic caucus in the House. So he's got some political savvy there. So I'm not much of a a beltway insider, and I don't know how things are going to change. But, you know, you could sort of imagine putting pieces together and imagine that plan having some traction somewhere. So as
0: an economic specialist, you respect him. Yes. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. John McConnell, for joining us to discuss the economic impact of delivering ED healthcare. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888 MDXM 157. And thank you, as always, for listening.